0: Here we come. Dwell down Deep and Wide. So down. All greash. Get a sound. Coming down. All right, we are back. We've got about eleven or twelve minutes left, so let's let's do mostly some health related stuff. We mentioned exercise earlier in the show as one of those things that can actually boost your immune system, at least within reason. And I've been sitting on a piece from The Economist uh, dating back to the beginning of the year that I think it's time to talk about. To quote, One sure giveaway of quack medicine is the claim that a product can treat any ailment. There are, sadly, no panaceas. But some things come close. And exercise is one of them. As doctors never tire reminding people, Exercise protects against a host of illnesses, from heart attacks and dementia to diabetes and infection. How it does, however, has remained surprisingly mysterious. But a paper published in Nature by Beth Levine of the University of Texas may shed some light on the matter. Dr. Levine and her team were testing a theory that exercise works, at least in part, by promoting autophagy, the process is derived from the Greek for self-eating. It's a mechanism by which surplus, worn out, or malformed proteins and other cellular components get broken up for scrap and recycled inside the body. They were able to, in this study, label cell components that were busy recycling so that they could be they would be viewed because they were actually glowing green. And they found that after exercise, these components increased, meaning that the cells were busy. Well, the factories were just sort of jacked up busy recycling components. Now, this ability to recycle our components actively is something that we share with all multicelled organisms. And in past decades, scientists have realized that, uh, well, this autophagy has been shown to be involved in things as diverse as fighting bacterial infections and slowing the onset of neurological conditions like Alzheimer's disease. Most intriguingly, it seems it can slow the process of aging itself. Biologists have known for decades that feeding animals near-starvation diets can boost their lifespans dramatically. Dr. Levine was a member of the team which showed that an increased level of autophagy brought on by the stress of living in a constant state of near-starvation was the mechanism responsible for this life extension. Now, the article notes that while there are a few anti-aging researchers out there that that are surviving on a near-starvation diet, Dr. Levine's results suggest that a similar effect might be gained In a rather more agreeable way, via vigorous exercise. This is some pretty interesting stuff, which we will continue to follow with you in the months and hopefully years to come. We have some interesting research done at the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, which is worthy of note. ScienceNews.org notes that uh, researchers tested the reasoning skills of volunteers while exposing them to different levels of carbon dioxide. They found that CO2 levels, and of course, when you're indoors in a crowded office, classroom, or other indoor space, CO2 levels go up, that such elevations worsen what were described as the volunteers' strategic and leadership abilities. Epidemiologist Mark Mendel was quoted as saying, It was so astonishing that it was almost hard to believe. The highest levels of CO2 that researchers measured was 2,500 parts per million. That can easily be found inside buildings, including schools, if they're fully compliant with current standards of ventilation. The highest levels of CO2 that researchers measured was 2,500 parts per million. That can easily be found in buildings, including schools, that are fully compliant with current standards for ventilation. Surprisingly, even 1,000 parts per million of CO2, a level that used to be considered a benchmark for good ventilation, caused a significant dip in performance. Now, if you're keeping track, outdoor concentrations are less than 400 parts per million, which is part of the whole global warming controversy. Researchers have long assumed that uh, moderately elevated CO2 levels had no effect on people's health or performance, which is why, said Mark Mendel, these findings are so startling. They suggest that efforts to make buildings more energy efficient shouldn't lock in the biggest source of indoor CO2, human exhalations. Now we should do a little bit about medical pot here since we were talking about it in the last segment. I've been sitting on a piece by Peter Heck since last July 12th in The B, which I think I will quote from. Mr. Heck, University of California medical researchers slipped an ingredient in chili pepper beneath the skin of marijuana smokers to see if pot could relieve acute pain. It could. At certain doses, they monitored patients with AIDS and HIV as they toked on joints or placebos to determine whether marijuana could quell agonizing pain from nerve damage. It provided relief. They also tested a, quote, volcano vaporizer, unquote, to see whether inhaling smokeless pot delivered healthier, low tar cannabis. It did. Peter Heck notes that over a dozen years, California's historic experiment in medical marijuana research brought new substance to the debate on marijuana's place in medicine. State-funded studies, costing $8.7 million, found pot may offer broad benefits for pain from nerve damage, from injuries, HIV, strokes, and other conditions. Unfortunately, California's Center for Medicinal Cannabis Research ran out of money last summer. Although he notes that there's still data in the pipeline related, related to about 300 research uh, subjects, Well, as the last data is being crunched, it's unlikely that medical pot research on such a scale is going to be repeated any time soon, which is sad, frankly, because politics keeps getting involved in this medical issue. Noted the piece, political frictions over pot remain volatile, and researchers say getting additional studies approved by federal agencies is as hard as ever. Despite findings of potential health benefits by California researchers, cannabis is no closer to winning federal acceptance as medicine. Also sounding off from this topic in the B was a viewpoint presented by Peter Armentaro, described as the deputy director of Normal, the National Association for the Reform of Marijuana Laws. He noted that in 2011, the Obama administration quashed out of hand an administrative petition that sought federal hearings regarding the present classification of cannabis as a substance with, quote, no currently accepted medical use in treatments in the United States, unquote. In its rejection, the administration alleged, quote, the drug's chemistry is not known and reproducible. There are no adequate safety studies. There are no adequate and well-controlled studies proving efficacy. The drug is not accepted by qualified experts, and the scientific evidence is not widely available noted Mr. Armentano, findings from California's 12-year-old study program show that each of those claims is demonstrably false. Adding that, of course, when it comes to marijuana policy in the United States, science has never played a significant role. Something even more alarming. A 2011 White House report affirms that there are only 14 researchers in the, in the United States who possess the legal permission to even conduct Research Assessing the Effects of Inhaled Cannabis in Human Subjects. And I know that, uh, you know, there are some pockets of resistance in the medical community. I got sent a copy of Medical Economics some months back with a, <laughs> with a long piece in it titled, A Dangerous Sham! Marijuana Misconceptions Affect Personal, Economic Health. In this piece, a uh, constipated-looking doctor from Greeley, Colorado describes how my nephew John started smoking marijuana with his friends at age 12. And about three paragraphs later, my nephew died in his bed at home at age 19 of an accidental multiple drug overdose, including marijuana and oxycodone. Well, no, no, doctor. He died of an overdose of oxycodone. As you may or may not be aware, doc... You, you really cannot kill people with an excess of marijuana. Anyway, the punchline of the piece was, John began his self-destruction with an addiction to marijuana. Well, I don't know. Was it that, or was it cigarettes, or was it alcohol? I mean, we're still back to that gateway drug thing. And I'm sorry. As a general rule, if we're talking gateway drugs, we're talking about tobacco or alcohol. They're readily available. In fact, you can find them just about everywhere. These are the drugs that kids get their hands on first. I'm sure we'll be talking about that more in the future. All right, I'm tempted to talk about a wonderful piece from Discover Magazine by Florence Williams, which cites research done at UC Davis by Mark Underwood, a neonatologist, about the power of milk and how breastfeeding can boost an infant's immune system, but we don't have time today. Luckily, uh, my colleagues over at Psych Nation Phil Wister and Dr. Art Magana talked about this at great length uh, some months back, at least Phil did. And uh, it is indeed interesting stuff. We just don't have time for it today, but we'll we'll come back to it. You know, I really am pleased to note that research from UCD is always being cited in in national publications. In fact, one of our economic historians, Gregory Clark, uh, talked on NPR.org and was cited in The Week magazine about a study he did about how climbing from poverty to success is not easier in the U.S. than it was in China, England, or in the past in many other countries. In fact, it's no easier today than it was 200 years ago. These are some surprising conclusions, because in America, we're in love with the idea that uh, we're socially mobile. But in actual fact, researchers noted that whether you're from Chile, China, England, Japan, Sweden, or the U.S., If people with your surname in 1800 were members of the elite, you're likely to be in the elite too. If your family name was linked to poverty back then, the odds are it still is. Gregory Clark was quoted as saying, as much as 60% of our social status is determined at the time of conception. We're going to have to bring some of these local researchers on the program. But not in today's show, because we are out of time. This show was produced like they all are by Edward McMillan. Our thanks to Ungayo Bilem. We posed some questions to you, dear listener, in our second segment, and we'd like to hear your answers, either at info at radioparallax.com. That's for us. Or for Ungayo's column in the Sacramento News Review, which is at ask420 at newsreview.com. We really do want to know. All right, next week is our Thanksgiving show. At least part of it will involve a look back at uh, our favorite piece from This American Life, which we made kind of a Thanksgiving tradition here on KDVS. We're pretty sure Ira Glass won't mind. That pretty much does it. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. We'll see you then.